Happy New Year! Welcome to 2018 and the Vince in the Bay podcast. This episode is long overdue, but better late than never, right? Like the past two episodes, it's an interview conducted over the summer at DEF CON 25 in Las Vegas, Nevada. This time with intelligence analyst Judy Towers and Michael Godeker, CEO of HackDefNet. Judy and Michael share their thoughts on threat intelligence and risk analysis in IT, dealing with C-suite executives, and other cybery cyber stuff. Enjoy. Vince in the Bay at DEFCON 25, currently joined by Judy Towers and Michael Godicker. Yep. Did I get that right? Yep, absolutely. Yes. First try. Awesome. And Judy, you are a Intel analysis, and Michael, you're a CEO. You're CEO of Hack DefNet. That's right. Judy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh my gosh. Well, I started out in the military. I was at MI in there and got my taste of doing investigations, investigation work. So, but I had an IT background. After I got out, I went back to IT got exposed to fraud, where fraud was being committed against the company. So I was doing those kind of investigations. And that's where I got introduced to the cyber arena, how people were coming in and uh, using our vulnerabilities and our processes against us to steal our services. And then moved over and kind of moved over to the cyber intelligence analyst part of it. And that's what I'm doing now, enjoying it. I, I, now I get to mirror, or not mirror, but I get to bring my army background because um, I was a counterintelligence agent then, with the and the the IT part of it, and then the cyber part, you know, it it's a passion. So that's I, great. I, it very well, by the way. She's thank awesome. you, thank you. That's very sweet. And it seems like nowadays the major threat actors out there are nation states in some cases. So it's kind of like your your former adversaries are now your new adversaries in Correct. the commercial space, Correct. right? Correct. And the social engineering is really spying, espionage. And that's we call it social engineering, but that's what in my day it was called spying and that's what mm-hmm. we did, did the same thing. We pretended to be other people to collect information and that's what it's just a new word for it, what we're doing. Go ahead, Michael. Uh, expanding on what uh, Judy said, I think uh, that's an interesting point because uh, when we have these discussions about security in general, training uh, security teams for defense, we see that uh, as threat actors change and they fall into this mode of espionage, um, the way that we were taught how to do security uh, doesn't work anymore. So the interesting thing is when we take a look at the threat actors out there, um, a lot of times, more often than not, when we dig deeper and uh, ana- analyze the evidence, we find that a lot of these different types of attacks do seem to be nation-state sponsored. But uh, the fact with forensics is you can never tell 100% who is actually behind the attack. And that's a disturbing trend that we're seeing, at least in our analysis. Well, there's, there's, we're getting, in my, one of my old jobs, it was the attribution wasn't as critical as who was doing it because we just wanted to protect ourselves and make sure we could survive it. So knowing that a nation state was targeting us was one thing, unless they were targeting, you know, in one of my other jobs, if they were targeting a whole infrastructure, then that was important. Then we would notify the government, hey, they are targeting this infrastructure. That's what they wanted to know. But if they're targeting just a few, we don't really care. 
We just need to protect ourselves. It's old and old infrastructure needs to be updated. Um, private industry, right? If I knew the attribution, am I going to take steps to go after a, pub, a nation state? No. The only people, who, in my opinion, who can go after another nation state is our nation state, right? One small bank, one small company isn't going to get the nation state, our nation state, to retaliate. We're not going to be able to get the FBI to go after China or Iran or, you know, North Korea. And part of me thinks North Korea is like target me. Tell everybody that I'm doing it, whether I'm doing it or not, because they just want to be touted as being a ego, whatever. Yeah, they so, want to be seen on the world stage as yes. a player. So, so in my opinion, I think China is doing a lot of it and letting North Korea take credit for it because deflection, you know, because China doesn't want us to point at them. They'd rather be pointed at North Korea and Korea, North Korea's going, yeah, look at me. I'm, I'm a bad guy. I'm a badass, right? right? I feel like the same sort of thing is going on with Russia, too. Yes. Like, like Putin yes. so much, so desperately wants to be seen like, as yes. the world's strong man. Someone with an ego that big uh, definitely loves the attention he's getting. Yeah. But I, uh, go to, getting back to the point, uh, from forensics analysis, saying that the attacker is that specific person is difficult because we have to rely on the evidence that we collect. Unfortunately, a lot of the attacks that happen that our nation state, they use proxies. So these proxies can be cybercrime groups, which is one of the reasons why attacks get falsely defined as uh, cybercrime when in reality they are uh, cyber espionage and warfare in nature. So that's one of the difficulties. The other thing is, like you said, uh, there's some things that point to China. There's some things that point to Russia. But we see um, a tendency of Iran, Russia, China working together, which makes it a lot more difficult. So is it one interest group? Is it one specific uh, nation in that group that initiated it? It's sometimes very difficult to tell. So some of the stuff that we do is we collect the nuts and bolts of data that we interpret. And we uh, basically score the returned results in a neutral kind of manner to alleviate some of uh, the interpretation that a human would do, right? So we let the machines interpret what we're seeing uh, to get to the point where, okay, well, we think there's an 80 to 90% chance it's probably China or Russia based on these different indicators, right? And um, that's some of the things that I think we need to do in the future. Um, I got into an argument with... uh, one antivirus company because they said, for instance, with WannaCry, um, we've got a new signature. But I'm like, well, you know, risk intelligence is different than threat intelligence is. So uh, a risk is something that can happen. It can leverage multiple threats, that leverage multiple exploits, that can uh, compromise a system, steal data, etc. That's one thing. The second thing is a risk and threat are different in that you have a different time frame. A threat is something that is just about to happen. So if you're on the defensive side and you're trying to defend yourself against an attack that's already happening, you don't have enough time to think logically. In risk intelligence, you collect information about things that may be a threat, and you have more time to react. So um, the other uh, pro and con with that is, the con is, you're looking for different sources of information. Whereas with threats, you have people that are quote-unquote advertising threat uh, streams that can tell you basically everything you want to know, which is not entirely correct. So if you interpret these different types of information, get the risks, then you can monitor them a lot better because you have time rather than threats. So once you monitor these things, then you start uh, looking at, okay, well, what is the history of attacks from the past? What are the IPs that they use? What VPNs did they use? What countries did they come from? What type of malware did they use? And then you collect all this information to uh, piece together a puzzle. 
That puzzle then indicates something that could happen in the future. It gives you what we call indicators of compromise or indicators of attack, and you use that in a proactive security defensive mechanism. So we're saying there's a lot of companies that sell defense. Why not use offense to create the best defense, right? I've heard that before. Well, in the sporting world or the sports ball world, the old saying is defense wins championships. So... I think the best offense is a bit, is a good defense, but I think it's different, apparently, in the information security industry because right. I, I see a lot of people saying offense. That means what uh, fostering a, a, a strong red team and and um, it seems like some of the bigger companies have, like have their own re- their own security teams that that do audits and and pen testing and stuff. But there's a lot that are contractors and. Um, I feel like there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there. There is, yeah. How do I know the difference between somebody that has a product that's worth investing in or worth you know, hiring them to work and something that's garbage? In my opinion, uh, the difference between what is quote-unquote snake oil and what is actual real is um, I like taking a look at the companies. If a company is selling me something that is offensive or defensive and they don't do no security research, my first question is, well, how do you know what to look for? Um, A lot of these companies that sell specific items, I don't see them at conferences. I don't see them at B-Sides conferences or DEF CON or anything else. I don't see them doing talks. And my first question to them is, well, if you want to sell a customer a defensive solution, do you know what you're looking for? How do you know that? Do you have the experience to, to determine what is or isn't a threat or a risk? That's some of the things that I would look for. The other thing is, if you have a solution, uh, is it an open solution? Is it a closed solution? Do you give the customer an option of tweaking, looking for a specific threat or risk? Or do you close down the system and say, you're using proprietary algorithms when, in fact, it's open source mathematics, right? So um, there's a a whole bunch of different things that I would be looking at, research being one of them, experience being the second one, and then what type of solution are they offering? Uh, Can it evolve with the teams that use it? Can it be used by smaller teams, larger teams? Is it easy to understand, et cetera? There's so many attributes that you look at at a tool. Um, We've been looking at a few and looking at Michael's too. You're right. Everyone is using the magic buzzwords in the marketing, right? I've got intelligence. Really, you've got raw data. And we're and everyone is talking about I see it out on Twitter. We're, those of us that do this kind of work are all saying the same thing. You're selling me data. You're not selling me intelligence. I've got to take care of it and turn it into intelligence for the business that I work for. And uh, back to Michael's point, we, I've used tools that I couldn't customize, and I got what you gave me, and I got what you thought was important to me. And then I still had to comb through it and find what was important to my industry, to the company I was working for, our interest. Um, so that's, you're, it is becoming an issue because it, there's money in it. Now there's regulation you know, uh, that is mandating that you have some of this capability inside of your company. So the contractors are getting it, and the companies are trying to build their teams. Back to your point, the red teams, blue teams, purple teams, whatever the teams we want to call. Uh, and then, then you got the regular, and this is off a tangent, IT, the IT function. Um, they think when we show up as cyber threat analysts that I'm calling their baby ugly and I'm really over here trying to say I'm just an aspect of IT. I just want to look at your data a little bit differently. I just want to run a query just a little bit differently. I'm not telling you your baby is ugly. I'm just trying to see how someone else might look at our data 
or you know whatever that's a good thing that you said about the the violet teams so the culmination or purple teams uh, culmination of red uh, and blue teams right that's uh, that's an interesting part of the conversation because what i find when i talk to a lot of customers is that you see aspects of the red team you see aspects of the blue team but that communication link is missing mm-hmm. and that's another thing if you maybe that could be the fuchsia team or the uh purple with pink polka dot team yeah. Do you think it's really cost-effective for most companies to put that much investment into in-house resources? Short answer to that is classical asset management. What are your assets? What are the value of your assets? One of the uh, uh, first conversation points I have uh, without selling anything is, do you know what your assets are? Okay, and then the second question is, well, what is the value of your assets? If you're, a, if you're a hospital, then your assets are obviously your patients. They're probably the research that you do on different types of diseases, cancer, et cetera. You know, and then you sell that research to different uh, places. When you have the discussion about what the actual asset is, then you can start to have a discussion of, okay, well, how much money do we have to invest to uh, mitigate the risk of something to our assets? And if you have that type of conversation, it's not just about selling something. I hate those conversations, which goes back to what you say about snake oil. Um, if you have those conversations, you take a look at what they have in place and then figure out how can I work with the stuff that they have, add additional features within the budget that they have, and then you know, um, add that value. That makes the most sense to me. Whether it's a company that has five people or a company that has 5,000 people, um, it should always be that type of discussion, right? And um, I think that's a thing that a lot of folks um, that think more technically, which is fine and good, uh, that they miss. Um, a lot of our conversation is about as we become an e-economy-based society, um, the way we do business by definition is through the Internet. The Internet was a system never con- uh, thought of to be secure. It was not concepted to be that way. So the more resources we commit to selling products on the Internet, the more likely we are to get attacked and the more risks we need to deal with. So that's one uh, an important aspect, I think. Well, the, the big thing that he was talking that it's evolving since I've been in it is that what we do is not an IT function. It's a risk function. It's for a business risk function. The only time that I, that I experienced what I did that was a business function is when I worked for a company that that's our business was to sell virus protection. I, I worked for a name brand company that did that. So that was easy when we did that. But now I work for a company that has a product that they sell and doing cyber work is not their function. So when we're trying to get money for what we need to do to protect the company, back to your point, yes, we are duplicating other people's efforts. It'd be easier to buy it and let us do a high level scope with it instead of doing the, the, the deep dumpster dive out into the dark net or whatever to go do research. Someone else is doing that. Let's not duplicate effort. I need, I need your data, the raw data, to turn it into the intelligence for my company. I don't need to go scrounge for the same data he's grabbing. There's a ton of us out there doing it. There's a gazillion of us out there doing it. It's wasting time. We talked about the big uh, company aspect that has money, uh, but the smaller companies tend to not have as much budget as big companies. They probably don't have security resources. And uh, interestingly enough, a lot of the attacks that happen today, uh, regardless of whether they're nation state or not, it depends on what area they're in, they target the smaller companies because they know their weaknesses. Um, And that's what I meant by this um, proactive intelligence. So you pull in information that tells you about the risks and then potential threats. But the other piece um, is basically being proactive in nature. So predicting where you think the next attack is going to come from using either a platform that is payable or someone that you can uh, hire to do that in your company. 
And um, I think one of the things that I'm seeing now is um, a lot of the smaller companies and owners I talk to, they ask me, okay, well, how can I do that? You know, I only have like 10,000 or 20,000. I can't pay a big accounting company for an audit because after the audit, I don't know what to do, right? And that's something where we're trying to approach them with a system that's payable, that makes sense, right? So uh, that's, that's an important piece, especially the small companies. And if, they're, if they work in defense, if they're critical infrastructure in, um, related, those are the types of companies that are getting attacked more and more now, a lot more. Speaking of threats, how much goes into protecting against insider threats? Are there active uh, security measures going on all the time, or is it just wait until something happens and then respond? I'm sure it's probably hard to, to predict where an insider threat might come from, but we've seen a lot of these you know, disgruntled uh, employees of government agencies who walk out of the building with with sensitive documents and i'm sure it's happened a lot in the corporate world and stuff um and there's uh, obviously there's a lot of corporate espionage there could be a mole inside the company to steal secrets what sort of uh security applications are are, do you use for that type of threat model some of the more um, easier ways to protect against insider threats are are just uh, examples of um, um, access controls so who's accessing what? Do they have a right to do that uh, or not? Second thing would be uh, knowing the applications. If an application accesses something, if you can narrow it down to someone who initiated that request, that would be an example. Um, knowing where your assets are, um, the design of the network, the design of your Active Directory, or uh, the permissions, users, and groups that you have. Those are some of the basic things. Um, even though they're very basic, a lot of people still don't pay attention to that, especially if the companies are smaller because they need to get something up and running very quickly. They can't hire a consultant that costs 2000 dollars a day. Uh, and they, they skip a lot of that stuff, and that bites them uh, in the back when an attack happens. Those are some of the things that I think um, I would take a look at, but the fact of the matter is insider threats is probably the most difficult thing to defend against. There's no such thing as 100% security. This risk approach, again, shows us that uh, even for smaller companies, what's the risk of uh, a threat being uh, exploited uh, and then resulting in a specific attack? So if we use that type of approach, that leads us to the next piece of the puzzle, which is using use case-based attack scenarios. Right? So if you focus your limited resources on using uh, a use case, an attack use case, then it'll show you, okay, from A to Z, this is my process. This is the technology within that process. What can I do with my limited budget to protect myself against the highest risks that could be exploited? The company I currently work for, they, when an employee leaves, they now have a policy that they'll do a forensic exam of your PC and your access and where you've been traveling out on the network, um, uh, you know, data stores and whatnot, the, the share drives or whatever. Uh, that was something that was implemented in the last year, which I thought was pretty cool because uh, it is a technically it is a small company. Um, we don't have a large uh, infrastructure to support. Uh, they make a lot of money, but um, you know, uh, but that I thought that was kind of a cool thing that it occurred. Um, back to Michael's point, the user access, the biggest thing that we have is locking down their permissions on their endpoints. Don't let them have permissions on the endpoint. In some IT departments, they're allowing users to install software because it takes the burden off of them, right? Let you download something off the internet, install it, and use it. Uh, That has caused some issues. 
then having share drives, massive terabyte share drives, and not locking that down, um, that caused an issue that cost another company a lot of money to recover. Mm-hmm. It took days because of, uh, the terabytes started getting encrypted. Uh, the user that it came in on her laptop was a drive-by website she went to, and it uh, started. She didn't have permissions to her laptop, but she did to the terabyte drive, to the whole drive. So it started encrypting it. We got the alert three hours later. You got something going on. We stopped it, uh, but because the backups, the incremental backups didn't uh, restore properly, they had to go back to a full. A full backup uh, restore of a terabyte took three days. Um, And then they had to have workers come in, spend 24 hours, hourly employees, all night, getting the date changes made to the data. Uh, You know, this is reality. This is, you know, we got all this technology, but we're not testing it like we should either. I mean, we could fight off a cyber attack, but if I'm not over there restoring my backups and testing my backups, my, my whole IT infrastructure is hosing, is worthless, right? And so um, we could be as good as we want to be on the front end, but if our IT systems in the back aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, if we're not following processes, if we're not doing user access rights, or if we're not monitoring the endpoints, or, or if we don't know where our assets are, where's our critical data? Who has access to it? Where's the network that goes to it? Who's talking on it? You know, let's prioritize the network instead of, I ask for the network diagram where the where the um, the critical things were, they sent me the whole network diagram and I had to figure it out. And I'm like, oh my god, I don't, I, I can't do that. I mean, that's you need to tell me that. And they didn't. They were just like, well, there's the network. We don't, you know, figure it out. And WannaCry was the eye opener. I mean, it was a it was an awesome test. It sucked for everybody because it was production, but it showed how fast everybody responded to an event, who was covered, who wasn't covered, and how long it took researchers to figure it out to let, alert everybody what was coming down the pike. Because we could see it moving across the globe watching it, and, um, to it, it, but it also got the C-suite's attention. Because now the C-suite is asking us, when are you going to tell me when this next one comes out? And I'm like, well, you know, if, if I knew that information, I wouldn't yeah. be working for this you. This isn't Minority Report, bro. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like, why didn't you tell us Petya was coming? Well, okay. Well, it's not Petya. <laughs> yeah. That's something that I find hilarious, fascinating, crazy about following this InfoSec community is, is once a big hack or breach or whatever hits the news everybody's sleuthing and 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 oh it's this oh it's that oh it's this and i've gotten to the point now where i i'm gonna wait till tomorrow and wait for all the smoke to clear and then find out what the hell just really happened right this is petya oh it's not petya oh it's not not peptia oh it made it maybe it is petya it's ransomware no it's not ransomware it's a wiper yeah. But it does collect ransom. So technically, it's kind of ransomware, isn't it? I think part of that issue is um, in the security research community, you have um, bigger companies that wait for researchers to publish something. Then they grab their reports, and then they rehash it in their own words and then sell it as their own research. That's an issue. What happens is when we find out attacks, it's because our customers call us up. And then um, when you see the same report from someone else, they're like, hang on, how did you find that out? You know, uh, This is our customer, and that's why we found out by accident with a lot of these attacks. And then you see some of these reports come out and they, they have incorrect information or incomplete information. And that creates a lot of uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And that's not what you want. I mean, every attack should be, by definition, a training uh, and learning function. So every time an attack happens, you learn from it. If you don't learn from an attack, the vectors that were used for the attack, then you're d- we're doing something wrong. 
Second thing is we talked about insider threats. One thing that makes it a sl slightly more complex besides just access controls is if um, an account has been breached before, uh, and we're talking about billions of accounts that have been breached um, throughout the last few years, and we have anywhere from 1,000 to over 100, 200,000 uh, accounts being breached per week, uh, if you have someone at a big company that uses their email to register for various different services and they turn up in various breaches, you know their password. So um, if I'm targeting uh, a specific dollar random company, I t the first thing I'm going to take a look at is, well, has their data been breached somewhere before in the darknet? Is there a password that they used in the past? Is there a password history? And then I can use that to break into their accounts. And that's how I can leverage an attack that looks like insider threats but in reality, it's an external attacker that's using that information. That's another thing that we try to teach people. Okay, well, you need to be aware of what we call open source intel and what's being traded on the darknet. Not everything from the darknet is bad. You know, um, that's not what I'm saying. But if there's data that's out there from different um, threat actors uh, being publicly traded, you need to be aware of that. I'm here at DEF CON 25 talking with... Judy and Michael. And Judy, you mentioned earlier about the C-suite folks getting wind of things. And one of the things that I think there's a huge gap in this industry now is, well, now that it's, it's, it's a you know, multi-billion dollar industry and there's, you know, now you have publicly traded companies on Wall Street. Correct. They have, they have an ETF fund that ind indexes all the, the cybersecurity firms that are traded. But um, I still feel like there's a major knowledge gap between the C-level people, Wall Street, investors, the folks, the talking heads on CNBC and Bloomberg, and people like you. Boots on the ground, you're working with the, the, the threats themselves, you know the day-to-day -day ins and outs of what's going on in the industry, whereas news for you guys is like, oh, WannaCry, let's talk about WannaCry, where did it originate and stuff. Tech news for, for these CEOs is, who's the new CTO of Twitter now? Who's going to be the new CEO of Google or something? It's just all about personnel moves, and it's not, you don't hear about... Um, I, I remember a couple years ago, FireEye had some of their tools leaked, and um, that didn't make it on, into the news on CNBC or anything like that. You know, I, I think I saw it on like Ars Technica or something. And so, what do you think about that gap, and 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 and, and about closing it and getting the C level people? to really get their head in the game and understand. I know they, that to them it's, it's all about the bottom line and everything, but I think a lot of these guys are getting, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of investors are getting duped by some of these big companies, and, it's, and it's, it's just all about trends and hype and all that stuff. What do you, what do you think? Right. It is a potential risk when uh, security technology gets released or defensive security technology gets released. We don't see a lo enough of that out there. Um, I agree with that statement. I think some of the things that we can do to work against that is just to create awareness. In its simplest sense, DEF CON and B-Sides events are meant to spread awareness of what's going on and also to create a community of people that hook up with the business and the tech, uh, technical uh, folks. If uh, the technical folks like us can manage to speak in a business language, like for instance, uh, this attack means that your assets will be uh, attacked. If they go offline, it costs this much money. That's a bad thing, so let's focus on that, right? 
So I think that's part of that. I don't know um, what else I could say to that besides speaking the business language, making sure that information uh, about technology is released to executives in a way, shape, or form that they can understand. I think it all, always, always comes back to education. When and if I'm um, appointed cyber czar, I'm going to institute mandatory IT boot camp for all citizens. And if people don't complete the training, they'll be put in a cyber gulag. Also, uh, I can agree with that. Also, JavaScript will be illegal. Flash, which is, well, we don't have to ban Flash because it's already going away. They're already, they're already getting rid of it. So that's taken care of. Um, what, what do you think about something like that being instituted? Maybe not like, you know, a decree for all citizens, but, you know, government employees having their own sort of little IT boot camp training thing. Um, same with, with companies, different organizations. I'm sure some of that exists. Is there anything like that out there that's already going on? Well, we're already doing that. I mean, if you take a look at the different uh, smaller security conferences and events, that's exactly what we do. I mean, uh, the purpose of B-Sides and other events like that is to spread awareness. You know, if you show a little bit of interest, we can spread that awareness. The other thing is there's mandatory requirements for bigger companies, specifically in the banking sector, to do things like um, security awareness campaigns. There's academic research that indicates if you do this type of stuff, you can reduce um, the amount of successful attacks by over 60-70% in some cases, for instance, for password uh, cracking. There is a community that's active. We want to help out. We're, we don't want to uh, breach systems, but we want to spread that awareness. And then there's a whole bunch of other uh, uh, different ways that we can do that. You know, online trainings, support folks, hacker, uh, hacker kids, those kinds of things. That's what I would take a look at. Well, I, I said it before, want to cry and not pet ya. It brought the, the C-suite into our environment, you know? It made them knock on the door, and it made them send emails, and we're directly responding, bypassing channels, and they're like, the CEO of the company wants to know. Um, and I, I don't like that it happened, uh, but it was an excellent, excellent, excellent test of our whole environment of the world, because everybody responded. And um, I think that's... And I'm not, please don't get anybody think I'm endorsing anybody to go out there and do it again. Um, but it was a, a very excellent test of, of response, researchers, the whole environment, the whole infrastructure, everybody got involved. You know, the, the, your next door neighbor knew about WannaCry. I mean, taxi drivers here in Vegas were telling me about WannaCry, and I'm sitting in the car, and I'm like, cool. It... it it was an awesome test. <laughs> it yeah, was an awesome, yeah. awesome test. I think it was a good wake-up call for, oh, for, for yeah. everyone. we got to wrap up really quick before we go. Um, so, Judy, yes. if people want to stalk you on Twitter, ah! what's your Twitter account handle? Well, it's Sniper Barbie or um, at LadyRed underscore 06. And, Michael, how can people stalk you on Twitter? Yeah, sure. Um, my Twitter handle is at 1D10T1. And that's... Idiot spelled in leet speak. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm up on the lingo. I know what's going on. You're sharp, man. Um, and you have a PhD as well? Oh, my God. Uh, well, I really appreciate both of you spending time to speak with me. Once again, that's Judy Towers and Michael Goldecker. Did I get that right again? Yes. Oh, and Michael's website is hackdefnet.com. And that's spelled H-A-K-D-E-F-N-E-T dot com. 
thanks, and enjoy the rest of your DEFCON 25. Yahoo! Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vince in the Bay podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Check out my bloggity blog at vincentthebay.com and hit me up on Twitter at Vince in the Bay. Until next time, ciao.